We are uh, we're in a series in the book of uh, First Thessalonians that uh, we're sort of uh, new into in our third week, and uh, I want to ask you a question about how we spread the gospel. I think with, with as many people as we have in this room, uh, we might answer that question in a variety of different ways. How do we spread the gospel? You might go to a variety of different texts to find that answer. You might even come up with uh, a really good plan uh, or a really good strategy for that. Uh, And there's probably more than one really good answer to the question, to be honest with you. But I will tell you that one thing that it must involve, and the writer to the church in Thessalonica or Thessalonica answers that question for us substantially this morning. And so we'll look at uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Or if you have your Bible app on your phone, uh, go ahead and turn there. If you don't, um, we'll have it up on the screen to help you. But, uh, but it's always good to have the Word of God open. And we'll, uh, we'll begin reading together 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. The Apostle Paul, with his ministry partners, Silvanus and Timothy, after granting them grace and peace in his welcome, says... We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not, need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Essentially, what, what the Apostle Paul is echoing here is that you and I are to be imitators and models as we echo taste and see that the Lord is good. Now that phrase, taste and see that the Lord is good, is borrowed, of course, from Psalm 34. It's not in here, but that's essentially what he's, what he's getting at here in First Thessalonians. You and I are to be imitators and models who echo taste and see that the Lord is good. Last week we began to see that the church is a community who's distinguished by the triune God. In other words, a lot of religions, a lot of religious people will talk about God in a general sense. But the Bible makes a very clear distinction and church history makes a very clear distinction that the difference between every other religion and Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the triune nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In our language, we say three persons in one God. That's where we spend the bulk of our time last week. So the church community is distinguished 
by our triune God, and it's distinguished by believers who are marked by faith, love, and hope. Now, some of you think from elsewhere in Scripture I might be, quit, might be uh, misquoting, but these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But here the Apostle Paul just reorders them a little bit, and it's okay to say it in a different order. Faith and love and hope. He talks about works of faith that are in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, which he says in Ephesians 2 are by his grace. I guess he says it here too, for that matter, in, the, in his opening. Works of faith are by God's power and strength as he works through us to bring the gospel to other people. And as he has worked through other people to bring the gospel, the good news of the saving grace of Jesus Christ to you and to me. And he says, this has gone out everywhere. I mean, you came, I mean, we came and you received this message. You received it and we see in you your work of faith as you labor in love. I mean, that means essentially they're, they're breaking a spiritual sweat as they work, as they put forward effort, not to earn their salvation, no, but as they've received the message of the goodness of God's grace and salvation through Jesus Christ, they've been empowered with the Holy Spirit and they're working it out. We've used the expression sometimes, work out what God has worked in you, and that's what they're doing. Their life priorities has changed, right? Do they still focus on, on, on their jobs and on providing for their family? Well, sure, of course they do. But they have a new purpose for it now. They have a new, a new mission in that process. They're no longer identified by what they do, but who they are. And that who they are has even changed. Their family heritage, while it matters, is no longer as important as being a child of the living God. That's their new identity. And so their work of faith works itself out in labors of love. There's they're straining, if you will, for the gospel. Elsewhere Paul uses that language. He says as I strain for the gospel. As I strain, as I break a spiritual sweat to to do what I'm able to do by the power of God and the working of the Holy Spirit in me to order my life in such a way that I'm able to bring the greatest news in all of the world to you. And that is that you can't save yourself. Religion's not going to do it for you. Going to a church, attending a Christian church won't do it for you. Following in the footsteps of your parents alone won't do it for you. Your parents' strong faith won't do it for you. Uh, an, an emotional decision you made one time, followed by a baptism, if not, if not motivated by a genuinely transformed heart, won't do it for you. In other words, when, when God saves you, your life is upended. Positively. Albeit confusingly at times. Because it's difficult. It's difficult to live in the midst of people who do not understand God's gospel priorities. Everything in our world says live for now. Work hard so you can enjoy your, your time with your family now. 
Well, praise God, enjoy time with your family. But be sure you don't work so hard earning the stuff that you want to do with your family that you don't actually enjoy your family. Right? You're not, you're not called to work hard so that your family can enjoy these things. You're called to simply be a provider at whatever that looks like. And it's God's to decide how much someone makes or whatever scale that looks like, whatever position someone holds in their work. That's, that's the Lord's decision, and he's good, so you can trust him in it. Or to work so hard that you're saving for retirement so that when retirement age comes, you just disconnect and travel the world. I mean, listen, if you're going to travel God's good, glorious, beautiful world, be missional about it. Talk with whoever you can about Jesus. Right? Go. Travel. But connect with people. Be connected to a community of the body of Christ. I feel another series brewing here. God made us to be engaged in one another ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ until the day that we die and we go home. Right? Go to heaven with your boots on. Go to heaven tired. Say, oh, I'm so tired. Ministry is hard. It is. It is. You know what the writer writer of Hebrews, I almost feel like it's sarcastic, but it's totally not sarcastic. You know, the writer of Hebrews, and I'm not going to even turn my Bible to it right now or I'll get totally off track, but the writer of the Hebrews, uh, to the letter of Hebrews says, as he's encouraging believers to press on in the faith, he says, you know, I'm going to paraphrase quite loosely here, but I know it's hard. The Father disciplines you in love, and it's difficult, but you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So come to me then. Like, let's talk. Like, let's talk once you've got that on your resume. He's not belittling. He's not minimizing legitimate struggles, great difficulties that people endure because they're living as Christians. When we live as Christians, we ought to have more enemies. Not because you don't interact with, well with people and you make your own enemies. No, we have different enemies, people who, who are against us because we're learning to increasingly align our priorities with God's priorities, which are very different than the priorities of the world. And people are frustrated by that. In fact, when we live in that way, the Holy Spirit brings a conviction that they feel. You might have experienced this sometime. You make a decision for your life, you know, and we do it as parents. Sherilyn and I just go through a variety of thought processes as we make decisions for our kids on, on what TV shows they watch or on what video games they play. I was telling somebody yesterday recently, some of the video games, even the intros to the video games or the artwork for video games are just as bad as some crazy TV shows out there. I mean, there's some stuff I don't, I don't want my two growing boys seeing right now. I know I can't control everything. I'm not trying to control everything. But the point is, we're going to make different decisions that are based on our understanding of what might be healthy for our guys. And you're going to also, and that's okay. Right? We might arrive at some different conclusions. That's okay. Make different different decisions at times for guys and for girls. Make different decisions depending on how old they are, depending on our background, depending on our experience. And that's all okay. But talk to someone who, who doesn't have God's priorities for their family about what your decisions are. And all of a sudden, 
they've got a different viewpoint of you. They might even be offended that just by virtue of making the decisions you're making, you're judging them. Say, well, I didn't even say anything about that. I just, we're just talking about our decisions. And as we increasingly taste and see that the Lord is good, and we become imitators, both of those who have brought the word of God to us in evangelism and discipleship, and as we become imitators of Jesus, our priorities change. And they cannot change without it affecting your day-to-day, seven days a week. So he's thankful for their works of faith and their their labors of love, right? They, They quickly became wholehearted followers of Christ, to borrow our vision statement for it, who in turn made other wholehearted followers of Christ as they were going about their life and living for their triune God. Loving. What is love? Well, it's a sacrificial, self-sacrificing care and commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good for the other individual. It's one way of thinking about it. Self-sacrificing care and commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one being loved. After Peter restored, uh, I'm sorry, after Jesus restored Peter, Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. You know I love me. Feed my sheep. In, in Revelation, Jesus rebukes the church of Ephesus because of all the good works that they were doing, good things. I mean, we'd look at what they were doing and say, good work, good work, good work. And, and Jesus says, you've lost your first love. You've lost your first love. And he says that they have a steadfastness of hope. They have a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They know that Jesus, who came once in the person, or that God, who came once in the person of Jesus Christ, we talk about it often at Christmas time, the incarnation, that he will come again. Why? Because he's always promised that he will come again. And so they're banking on this hope. Many of you look to the end goal as you work for your paycheck or another end goal. Or, or if you're a runner, I've heard people who run say something like, you know, you just when you're tired, you just look for the next telephone pole. You just look for the next five-mile marker. You just look for the next, you know, tangible goal. And, and, and keep your eyes set on the horizon. You might have heard me say this before when I was learning to ride a motorcycle uh, some years ago. I was reading a manual, or not a manual, but I was just reading a magazine, and, um, and it was talking about racing, and, and I'm certainly no uh, a racer on a motorcycle, that's for sure. Um, but they were talking about how when racers, you know, these guys on these bikes, and they're just basically laying on the ground, and you, you think that they must be anchored to a pole in the middle of the raceway, that's just helping them go around in circles. I mean, because they're laying on the ground, you know, and they've got these thick pads on their knees and just entirely covered them in case, you know, I mean, one slip and you're toast. And so, you know, they're bubble wrapped and all this kind of stuff. And right. But one of the things that this I remember, I'll never forget reading this article. It said, when we get afraid, we start to look at the very thing that we are afraid of and we drive right for it. 
And so you have to look at what's up around the corner. You must keep your eyes set on where you want the bike to go. Christian, you must keep your eyes set on the horizon of the fact that one day Jesus will come again. One day Jesus will come for his church. One day Jesus will, will wipe every tear from your eye. One day Jesus will, will, will release you from this physical body where we strain with sin. Until that day, we're going to strain. We're going to struggle. But look ahead. Look to where your heart must be linked so that you're able to walk in faith. And I would say look with one another. William Barclay comments on this word steadfastness and he says, it's the spirit which can bear all things. Not simply with a, a resignation like, oh, this is about to come, but a, but a a blazing hope. It's not the spirit which sits statically enduring in one place, but it's the spirit. It's the spirit which bears things because it knows that these things are leading to a goal of glory. It's not, it's not the patience with which one grimly waits for the end, but the patience which radiantly hopes for the dawn. Christian, the dawn is coming. Jesus is faithful. He has fulfilled every promise that he has ever made and he will fulfill every promise that he has made. In his time, in his ways and according to his wisdom. And so we know that sort of who God's chosen people are because how? Well, because they receive the gospel with grace and they, they give evidence by their words, by the power of the working Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit working in them and through deep conviction, right? Believers are, they're marked by faith. They're marked by uh, love. They're marked by hope. And as those who are marked by these things, they become imitators and they become models who echo, taste and see that the Lord is good. You ever receive something worthwhile from someone else? You ever had someone who's, who's taught you a certain trait? Maybe it's a coach. Now, there are coaches who coach to win games, and there are coaches who coach to transform lives. And I mean Christian coaches and, and non-Christian coaches who coach because they want to make an impact on kids or teens or young adults, whatever the age. They want to make an impact. It's not always about winning, or maybe it is, but your definition of winning is quite different from another's. It's usually those kids who often grow up to exemplify what their childhood coach modeled for them. They say, I want to be like that coach. I want to be like that, that man, that, that woman. When I was in college, I had a pastor who invested in me. He coached me, coached me up as they say. And he watched me flounder. Well, that makes it sound like he let me flounder. <laughs> well, he did because I knew the Lord had it. But as a young adult, I sat under his preaching and his teaching and I'd gone to a little bit of college, but 
I learned from this pastor how to study the Bible, how to read the Bible, how to preach the Bible before I could actually preach the Bible. And he, he let me preach for my first time. And I remember trying to preach like him. Now, there's preaching like someone in such a way that, that, uh, that you learn the qualities of how to study a passage and how to try to relate the text to someone in a way that's helpful, in a way that brings hope or brings the true message of whatever that passage is. Sometimes it's hope and sometimes it's conviction. And so you want to try to bring those things in the same way that, or in, in right relation to the way that, that the Lord wants us to, knowing that it's actually God's responsibility through the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish conviction, to anchor someone in hope. But I remember trying to, trying to preach like him. And I remember there was a day when in one of our discipling conversations, we used to sit in his living room sometimes and we'd, uh, we'd listen to music and we'd talk about different things and we'd stay up sometimes just into the uh, late at night, into the middle of the night sometimes, just talking. And he just sat with me and explored life and talked about life. And, and one day he said, Matt, be yourself as you preach. Just relax. Be who God made you to be. The principles that I've learned that are good, great, employ them, because they didn't start with me. But many preacher before me. Preach the gospel. Let God use who you are to be who you are, to minister to who he gives you to. So I could still emulate or imitate him without trying to copy him. And he said, yes, come, follow me as, as I follow Christ. Some of you have the opportunity, those who are following you, to continue to say, follow me. But you don't have to stick right here by me the whole time. Follow me. Go ahead and lead others. Keep imitating Jesus. And you be this model for someone else. And we often think about that in, in church contexts and formal ministry relationships. But you know who that is? Parent, that's you. Mom, that's you. Dad, that's you. Deacon, elder, teacher, men's group leader, community group leader, that's you. Men's group attendee, that's you. Always looking to someone to imitate as you look to imitate Christ and as you live to be a model for others. Oh, I can't be a model for others. I've got all this baggage in my life. Well, then you don't understand the gospel. And that's not an insult. When you understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which saves and keeps saving you, that keeps transforming you, you welcome not only the message, but the person of God to do that work in you. And you begin to understand what's your work and what's the Spirit's work. Look how he lays this out. 
He, he says in verse 5, he says, Because our gospel came to you in word, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says, You know the kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that, purpose statement, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And he says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone out everywhere. This is a wonderful gospel, gospel gossip. In other words, I hear that you're, you've responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're working it out with fear and trembling and you're laboring in love and you're steadfast in your hope. Other people see it and they're talking about it. You're not just talking about it, but you're living it out. And you're living it out for all others to see. He says essentially no longer, in fact, he says not essentially, but in verse 9, for they themselves, these people who are gossiping in a good Bible okay, Jesus okay kind of gossip, way of gossip, right? Because gossip typically is a negative connotation. But anyway, they're gossiping about the way that the, they're gossiping about the way that the gospel is at work in your life and is bearing fruit through you. How? Because the things that you once loved, you no longer love. You've turned away from idols to serve the living God. You've changed your religious patterns. Now you're worshiping God in the person of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You've turned away from the things that would control your life and your heart. He mentions them in Galatians 5, sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And you're like, oh, well, thankfully I'm not on that list. Oh, he's not done. Enmity. Any enmity in your heart? Drunkenness. Being more controlled by any substance than you are by the Holy Spirit. Orgies. And in case you think you're clear because you're not on the list. And things like these. All of the worldly idols, all of the worldly self-control pursuits, all of the things that, that we want to go after that bring us peace, we think, or that calm us, we think, or that solve our temporary problems, we think. And he says, I warned you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you've heard me say this before. Those who do things like these doesn't mean if you slip up, you're not a Christian anymore, right? I mean, God saves us. He sustains us and he holds us until the end. But, but when, you, when you live in that way, in a movie strip kind of way, as opposed to like a photograph kind of way, right? We all have, we, we go through our days and we look at our day and we go, oh, that, I hope nobody sees that photograph. But if it's three months, six months, nine months, years, of a, of a movie reel of living in ways that are counter to who God is and what God says of his people, well, then you need to look at it. It, it might be 
that you haven't been redeemed by Jesus because you still love otherworldly pursuits. That doesn't mean that Christians don't struggle. And sometimes Christians struggle for years. So don't hear a black and white statement there, but a general description. And he says, now you're marked by the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those who belong to Jesus have crucified, have put to death, or are continually putting to death. I love the old Puritans used to say that they are mortifying the flesh, right? I don't know if it was John Owens, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. You've crucified, you've turned away from the flesh with its passions and, it des- and its desires. And he says, you're tasting and you're seeing that the Lord is good. So Christian, taste and see that the Lord is good in every area of your life. Welcome the message and the person. Taste and see that the Lord is good in every area of your life. I love Psalm 86. I think it's verse 10 or 11, but he says, unite my heart to fear your name. In other words, my heart, Lord, oh, my heart is fractured. I want to please you at one moment in this area of my life. And then over here, all of a sudden, it's like I forget that I'm a Christian and I go after my own desires. He said, make all of me fear you so that I love you or because I love you. Fear and love are inextricably linked. They're connected. And he says, you're, you're living this way, imitators of their disciples in Christ, in spite of affliction. That means, Christian, life in Christ is difficult. It's challenging. You should expect it. Oh, this trial in my life, God must have forgotten about me. No, a servant is not greater than his master, our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at all the affliction he experienced. Why would we think, why on earth, especially when the Bible tells us to expect it, would we, ex- would we anticipate that life would go well for us when we follow the Lord? Or, or we make the disastrous mistake of trying to compare ourselves to someone else. Well, how come they've got this? I'm telling you, I do it all the time. Constantly, the Holy Spirit is gracious to, to bring me back Lift my chin to heaven and say, keep looking at me because where you're looking, that's where you're going to drive. Keep looking at me. Keep looking to the end goal. We don't live for temporary pursuits. Every one of us has struggles. The Lord's another sermon, but the Lord designs each and every struggle in every one of our lives to, because he knows it's the exact school that you and I need to be shaped into the image of Christ for the day that he takes us home. So God's not absent-minded. He's not confused about why you're going through your trials. Psalm 139 tells us every day as you have been fearfully and wonderfully made, every day of your life has been ordained by the perfect sovereign God who loves you. It's good. You can rest in it and you can rest while you're confused in the midst of it and, and persevere with a steadfast hope, an anchor of your soul, knowing that there is not one arrow that makes it through the protection of your God.
And if it hits you, it will not take you down because you're his. Be encouraged. Ask the Lord to unite all of you to fear him and to love him. Last Sunday, we rang out a a clarion call to, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Parents, sometimes... Sometimes parents struggle to talk to their kids about the gospel because they just, they have a hard time with words. I understand that. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. So please hear that. There's an old expression that says, take words with you. God's given you wonderful words. Your your goal, parent, is not to be an expert, but to be a model. Do you know what it communicates to your kids, and I don't care what their age is, when you say, I'm not sure the best way to accomplish this, but let's look at it together. It communicates humility. You know what humility is? The mark of someone who's been redeemed. The mark of someone who says, I don't have to have it all figured out. I can follow the one who does. Let's walk together. Open. Grab a family member. Pray. Read. Help each other follow. And this is true for parents. This is true for grandparents. This is true if you lead a ministry in the church or if you're sitting in one of these chairs and and you're just getting to know people here, you're not quite sure where you fit. Sometimes you can, you can model by asking a question. Hey, I'm really struggling. Would you pray for me? Odds are someone you're going to ask is going to feel uncomfortable with that question. But being put in that place, they might just be willing to say, sure. I don't think I pray that well, but sure. Even in your lack of head knowledge or experience, time walking with the Lord, you can model to them what humility looks like. And in the verses 8 and 10, in the conclusion of this passage, essentially he says, let it sound out from you. Let it sound out from you. Ring it out. Let it sound forth like a trumpet from your mouth that says, oh, friend, Come and listen. Come and learn of this Jesus whom I've learned of. He's freed me from my fears. He's freed me from my challenges. This life is difficult and I'm walking through it knowing that there are people on the other side of this town that want to round up all the Christians and persecute them. Maybe like oftentimes the Old Testament saints, Israelites, they experienced economic persecution. They were were poor. They thought the Lord had forgotten about them. Maybe like some New Testament saints or some current day saints around the world who are giving their lives. Not expecting that Jesus will nece- that the Lord will necessarily save them from death, but knowing that he will deliver them through it. I want to need to ask you, Christian, what is it that you fear? What is it that you fear that will prevent you from following Christ with all you've got? 
Parent, do you fear the safety of your children to the degree that, that you just pray God wouldn't call them away to serve the Lord in a high-risk area? Go serve the Lord. Go give your life to mission. Not there. No, not there. Do you fear losing your job to the degree that you're not willing to talk about the good news of the gospel of Jesus to those whom you work with? I'm not saying that you you live as a paid evangelist by your employer. I'm saying you work with integrity And when given opportunity, you talk about the goodness of Jesus Christ. You have more legal protections currently in this United States than we would ever imagine. But even when we don't, and the day is coming quickly, even when we don't, aren't you so thankful that a man who honored authority but didn't stop when they said, stop talking about this Jesus. He said, I can't do that. I've got churches to write to, a gospel to spread. We have half the New Testament because of his faithfulness. Who will you be as you imitate those who discipled you, as you imitate those who brought the faith to you, and as you imitate your Lord Jesus Christ? Taste and see, it's the, it's the freely flowing, passionate plea of the psalmist, of the Thessalonian Christian, of the Oak Grove Christian who is walking in the spirit and is deeply wants others to know the sweetness of fellowship with Christ as well as themselves. The Lord will protect you. He will sustain you. And I've experienced it. Come. Taste. See. You'll see he's good. You'll see he's faithful. He'll change your life. Friends, you and I are to be imitators and models who echo taste and see that the Lord is good.